Hello and welcome to the 21st Rewrite, the podcast about screenplays written in the 21st century. I'm William Coldwell and I'm joined as always by Alan Vasquez. We are going to be talking about Manchester by the Sea by Kenneth Lonergan, nominated and won and won, yeah, for best screenplay in the Oscars of 2017. Correct. And also was a blacklist screenplay, so that was floating around for a while. I right. think it it made the list in 2014. Mm. And also for viewers that don't know what that is, that is a a list around Hollywood that contains the best unproduced scripts. Yeah, it, it's voted for in terms of what people think will be successful rather than maybe writing talent. So blacklist scripts are pretty interesting to read because mm. you you don't know if you've actually found a gem or one that has a lot of potential to be commercially successful but isn't right. necessarily the greatest script ever. Right, However, right. Manchester by the Sea is a deep and detailed uh, oh, script yeah. with <clears throat> a very good character portrayal, really mm -hmm. good dialogue. It's Absolutely. been a joy reading it. Yeah, and it, I think it's a script that was in development for quite a few years. And I think, like most scripts, it mm -hmm. takes a few years and rewrites. But I really feel the the writer, uh, Kenny, had a lot of deep insight into the theme of loss for the film and grief, profound grief. And I think the way he weaves the the themes into the story is is very subtle but very profound because they they manifest in small details that kind of engages your imagination to think well what what happened and for you to create your own scenarios because they don't really show if you really watch the film you don't really see a lot of dramatic moments that happen in terms of plot or in terms of what this family went through what the main character Lee went through uh, it's all kind of the residue of mm -hmm. that and the residue is so potent in every scene that you you you're just sucked into it yeah a, a lot of the story is told through flashbacks right. and these flashbacks aren't necessarily one of the ways i can see it is you have footage of the past mm -hmm. and you can go back and refer to it at any time and a lot of the flashbacks kind of come through as memories they're they're coming in fragments so you really get the sense of what it's like for Lee himself to be reminded of things and then capture that little snapshot of the past. And maybe even the memories themselves are affected by the personal process of how you remember yeah. things. Right. One of the interesting things about the key flashback, for example, is that you don't actually see a fireplace at all mm. in his memory. And that's what leads to the disaster. Right. I think that kind of comes through and it's not so expositional. It's not telling you exactly where to look. It's inviting you into that. Exactly. That world. Yeah, yeah. That, that's the right word. I think it invites you to sort of join the character on this sort of mental journey that he's going through. And I think what, what happens there is that you begin to piece in the clues. The flashbacks don't feel flashbacky. There's no different color palette. There's no difference in tone. It's like... It's almost like they just kind of creep in there. I remember the first time I watched it, it took about a minute into the flashbacks for me to realize that it was a flashback because it just feels very, as a matter of fact. Yeah, this is one of the cases of a writer and a director, right. the same person, uh, right. but trusting the audience to pick things up right. and to not yeah. hold their hand through the, the whole story. Exactly. And I love that because you are putting all these different pieces together and then by the time that you have the whole picture, not till the very end. I mean, I think you get the whole picture about three-fourths of the way in. And then the last quarter, you're completely on board to, you know, with this character. And you're able to sort of package it all together by the end. Yeah, it takes time to get mm -hmm. to know what's happening. And right. that process is important as well. If it were to start at the beginning, five years in the past, and mm -hmm. then show him returning it wouldn't have the same impact. There's mm. all of this additional sense of repression, refusal to accept, refusal to engage with the past and come to terms with it. And yeah. he is a character who's kind of stuck in a loop in, in some right. ways. Right. That's the defining aspect of him. Mm -hmm. The real theme for me is, are there things in life that you can't bounce back from? Right. Is there anything too painful? Right. 
to ever come back from. And I think the director really wanted to express that. I think it was his intention too. You know, he wanted to write a film in which we see the character not necessarily bouncing back mm -hmm. and does ask that question. Is there a way to go back from, from such a tragedy like that? It doesn't really answer that, and I don't think it should have. And I think everyone has a different opinion of what that is. But I, I really appreciate the fact that we don't see this character sort of see the light or have this step into recovery. I think even towards the end, you know, he kind of says, I just can't beat it. That's right. So it, it's not an inspirational story, but it's a story about the real people you might find in the world. Mm-hmm. It's reflecting mm -hmm. those struggles, the fact that people don't always get past the things that are that are hurting them. Yeah, but and it does it with, I think, such realism in the sense that it adds humor. And, and that's one thing that I noticed this time watching it, because this is my second time watching it. The first time I watched it, I was just very depressed by the end of the film. I just wanted to slit my wrists. <laughs> but watching it this time, I, I picked up on all these funny, I don't know if it was meant to be funny, but it, it for example, there's a, the scene where the house is burning down and uh, the character of Randy, Lee's wife, is being put in the ambulance. Oh, the uh, stretcher. The stretcher. Went, she's, oh, on the, yeah. right, she's on the stretcher and they're, they're trying to put her inside the ambulance, but they're just struggling to get her on there. And then, it, like the camera focuses on that for a good minute of their struggle. Mm -hmm. And it's like so random. It's like, why are they why are they focusing on that? You know, it's such a heavy scene like of what just happened, but yet it's almost like shining light of like there's humorous moments in, in tragedies and painting a, a humor into it. Yeah, there's something humorous about the just the absurdity of something right. going wrong at the time when you, you can't laugh. And, and yeah, that creates yeah. this, <laughs> yeah. this but I was laughing so hard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But there's a lot of that, especially in Lee's interaction with his his nephew. There's there's oh, lots right. of great dialogue. Oh yeah, lots of jokes. Yeah, Patrick, his nephew, has been written very well as a teenager. Yeah. Oh yeah, I think he was definitely the humor in the film. That dynamic is really what makes the film. Mm -hmm. I think that's what really. It's almost like he's the invitation to lee for him to maybe try to bounce back i think maybe lee does try it in some form or another but it, i think he tries very hard yeah he tries here and there but it's just for patrick for patrick and and to an extent he does to an extent i think he he really does have moments of there's some happiness or there's a moment where they're on the boat and it's towards the end of the film and there's just one shot of lee in the back of the boat and he's smiling Mm -hmm. And this is present time. I think the first time he smiles in the film, and don't quote me on this because I haven't actually sat down and watched it frame by frame right. to see if this happens, but I think the first time in the present setting that right. he smiles in the film is when they're on the boat and Patrick's showing his girlfriend how to steer and she swerves. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. The motor goes too fast. And that's when he actually uh, smiles for the first time. Right. And yeah. it, he's got that sense of freedom. And a lot of the pain he's suffering is coming from the community around him. Right. As well as from within and not being able to, to come to terms with his grief. Yeah. In Manchester by the Sea specifically. Right. He is not always going to be able to make his, his struggle known to other people. There are people who do consider him essentially tarred for life, yeah. marked for life, let's say, even to the point of thinking he's a murderer, although they won't say that in specific, yeah. but that, that's yeah. kind of the sense you get. Absolutely. And I think, I think that's the awesome part of the film is that none of this stuff is ever said. You never hear the characters say, oh, I don't want to talk to him because of this. Mm -hmm. You never hear exposition from the characters, yet you know exactly why the people are reacting to him in the first place well in the beginning of the film that's also the brilliant part is that you get little comments here and there by the coach or one of the other people in the neighborhood mm -hmm. who lets you the audience know they recognize his name right so he's you get that sense that he's been away long enough right. but they do know his name and they know his reputation right and it's, it's extended and obviously his family was 
reasonably mm. big Irish Catholic family. Right. And a few think, brothers. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that lets us know that something happened to this character. And, you know, when we first meet him, he's living in Boston, I believe. He's not in Manchester by the sea. And, you know, we see him kind of go through his routine as a handyman doing all these things. And he doesn't speak, doesn't engage with people. He has no will to really be alive. He's just kind of dead inside in a way. He's dead inside. He's trying to carry on. He's trying to restart. He's not really able to. And he doesn't have any real emotional control. And we actually see this is this is kind of part of his character anyway, even in flashbacks. Right. He has had a drinking problem. Mm-hmm. He is very short-tempered. But by the point that he's living by himself as a janitor, he feels like he's got pretty much nothing to lose. So he will swear at the tenants if they're rude to him. Yeah. And obviously gets a complaint about that. Uh, right. He goes and starts fights in bars when he gets too drunk. Yeah, you see his repression of mm-hmm. that anger kind of shooting out. I think that that's kind of what I see his character doing. He has all this stuff bottled up inside. Mm-hmm. And he's refusing to really process much. And being outside of Manchester by the Sea, I think, helps him with that. So when he goes back to Manchester by the Sea, it's almost like life's inviting him to confront. Yeah, it's magnified when he returns. The struggle is. Lonergan is focusing on Lee and this whole beginning part. It's it's a few minutes of very low-key shots of what he does, Mm -hmm. what his life is like. You you start to feel sympathy for him. Right. And you're invited into this world, but you see it as a kind of dead-end lifestyle. There's that sense that when you see those explosions of emotion come out of him, it really does reveal that there's no running from this, no matter Mm -hmm. where he goes. Mm -hmm. He's never going to be able to outrun the the grief. It's going to catch up with him. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really important that the screenwriter chose to focus on that aspect of the character above all else and the one thing that i really enjoyed reading the script was when i watched the film i just thought how amazing casey affleck did just sort of exuding this sort of sorrow without really saying much like it was all in his eyes it was all in his mannerisms he didn't have to do anything really yeah he just convinced you that there was something going on i mean talk about a non-showy role that kind of Mm -hmm. pierces through you i mean that's such a I feel such a delicate balance and hard to do. And then reading the script, I realized how specific the character was written. Yeah. To the point where it's like, well, I'm sure he's a great actor, but I'm sure reading the script, it's pretty pretty clear as to who this character should be. It's all there in the writing. It's all yeah, in the descriptions. So yeah. Do you know who was meant to to be the character originally? Right, so Matt Damon, Matt Damon, I believe, was supposed yeah. to be the, the actor. So yeah. this was originally Matt Damon and John Krasinski's idea. Right. So they, they gave it to Kenneth Lonergan right. to, to write the script. And I believe Matt Damon said the only person he'd give the role up for was Casey Affleck. So. Yeah. yeah, and he did, he did brilliantly. I mean, it was just a, a great performance to watch. It was just, it really felt like a a fully dimensional character. Mm-hmm. And, and it was all also in his interactions with the other characters, which I think were all used very, very wisely. I think all the supporting characters, you know, his brother, his brother, Joe, uh, Randy, his wife, all these different characters kind of paint a different shade of who he is and bring up different aspects. But, but all those characters kind of represent a different aspect of what his life was. And especially the character of Randy, which I think at the end of that last scene with him and her was just such a heartbreaking scene to 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 watch and and reading it on the script like it was all like there word for word pretty much there was very little change by the actors. It was a very well written scene, and I gotta say from a screenplay perspective, I've never really seen a script where there's like two columns of dialogue. This happens a lot. Yeah. It does. Um, I, I really love that. I love that too. And it was just like such a new thing. And it shows how, what a strong vision he mm-hmm. had because he had specific times where they would interrupt each other. Like he had that pre-blocked and that's pretty rare for a film. One of the criticisms of 
Sorkin, who we spoke about with Steve Jobs, mm-hmm. is that uh, supposedly a lot of his character's dialogue is interchangeable. That it's Sorkin's voice is coming out in lots of other characters. Yeah. Whereas what you see with this script and those those two columns and in scenes like uh, the hospital flashback to when Joe is getting the news about his, his heart condition, yeah, everyone starts talking over each other and you've got these two columns and all these names appearing and everyone is talking in a completely distinctive voice. Yeah. And you can really sense they're all very different characters yeah. just by the way they're, they're written. Absolutely. And, and that just shows, you know, how vivid that must have been in his mind, mm-hmm. what, this, what this scene would really look like. I think my absolute favorite use of the, the two-column format, though, so they're talking over each other, is when Patrick comes out of his girlfriend's house and he's asking his uncle, aren't you going to ask what happened? And at the same time, Lee responds, I don't care what happened or don't tell me what happened or something. <laughs> you know? So they... Um, yeah. It, you do, they both want to talk at the same time and they say the exact opposite thing. And you right. see that big contrast between the two of them, how Patrick's full of that youthful uh, enthusiasm and he's so proud of these, the women, he's, the girls he's, right. he's sleeping with and he sees it like it's he's, increasing his social standing. He's showing off. Yeah. He's a cool teenager. You know, he always talks about his band and his girl, girlfriend. Terrible so, band, yeah. by the way. <laughs> It was it was so funny watching that like they're horrible, yeah. Uh, but you know, like every teenage high school band, you know. You, yeah, I you think, think that's you sound what it's great. Reflect, and, yeah. yeah, 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 exactly. And it's also a, a contrast to how he's dealing with grief, mm-hmm. as opposed to, of course, the nature of what they're grieving about is mm-hmm. way different. But nonetheless, there's still Patrick's way of dealing with it. I mean, his father just died, and. Mm-hmm. You know, he's just going on with business as usual. You know, he's got his two girlfriends. He's bouncing back. He's yeah. busy. And I love that scene where Lee is, he's in charge of taking care of Patrick now because it's what Joe wanted. And he's reluctantly, you know, trying to be sort of a father figure for him or at least, you know, his guardian. Patrick doesn't want to move to Boston. And I love the scene where he's telling Lee why he, he can't leave and it, it should be that it should be Lee the one to move to Manchester by the sea saying, you know, he's busy with school. He's got hockey. He's got two girlfriends, like just kind of naming all his social things. And I just found that scene. It was like so funny to have these two characters from completely different perspectives. Yeah. And you know. that's when Patrick delivers one of the killer lines of the movie. He says, what the hell do you care where you live? And the, the central conflict of this movie is between those two characters. Mm hmm. The deaths are backstory. They are Mm -hmm. defining moments for the characters. Mm -hmm. But the real conflict is about, is Lee able to come and move to Manchester by the sea? Mm. Or is he going to take Patrick to Boston Mm -hmm. and uproot him? Mm-hmm. And that that conflict is behind it, most of the scenes and in their interactions together. Yeah. And when Patrick asks him that, what do you what the hell do you care? That's that's the the inner child saying, you've got nothing. You're a janitor. Your mm. life isn't important. Uh, mine is important. You can do this for me. Come and live here. Mm. But when you see scenes like the scene where Lee is going around town trying to find a job mm. and the way he's rejected by the community, mm. that's the real answer of why he cares. Right, right. That's why he cares yeah. where he lives. Yeah. Because there is one place in the world where it's going to be more painful for him than anywhere else. And that's where right. his his ex-wife lives and all of the memories are and the community that is right. in a large part rejecting him is all there. In Boston, he can be anonymous and the pain is reduced for him right. by being separated from, yeah, by creating a distance from the memories, from the ex-wife, from everything. Yeah. And he couldn't do that if he moves back to Manchester by the sea. So it's authentic dialogue in the sense Mm -hmm. that he doesn't respond with that answer. Yeah. We have to infer that. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and I think he, he tries, you know, we get to the point in the film where he's investing some energy on Patrick. He's starting to care. We see he's starting to really care for this kid. He's always cared, you know, Mm -hmm. his family, but now he's really trying to make an effort to to do what's best for him. And we see him 
like you said, he goes around looking for a job. So that's him trying. And then I think the moment where he meets his uh, ex-wife or bumps into her on the street and they have that whole exchange where she apologizes and she gets really emotional. I think that's almost like a done deal for him. Nail on the coffin. Like, I can't yeah. be here. He it, even tells her so I can't crushing. do it. You know, he, he can't even look at her, really. He leaves. And I think, you know, that's when I feel in the film where he makes his decision to hand him over to to the family friend and, and just because that's what's best for him and best for Patrick too. Mm-hmm. And there's that sense that he kind of feels like a ghost hanging around. Right. So something is, when he's seeing his ex-wife, he's also feeling that she started this new life. She's got mm-hmm. a new husband now. She's had a baby. Right. And she's got an opportunity to start again. And right. he, he at, to some level, feels like if if he stays there, then he's hindering her chance at restarting. He might not be able to beat it, but maybe she can. Yeah, and I think the the reason why, because they they both lost their three kids, and she's moving on. I mean, she's never going to recover, really. And she even says it. You know, her heart will always be broken. But I think the difference between their grievances is that he carries a whole lot more guilt because he indirectly did cause the the fire that that killed these kids i mean imagine having that over your head something that she doesn't really have she doesn't have the i'm sure she feels guilty to an extent but he must feel like he single-handedly murdered his kids Mm -hmm. and i think that's a greater weight to have than her yeah so he has this kind of i suppose a kind of survivor's guilt which we explore a bit in the scene where he's in the police station and he can't really get his head around the fact that he's not even being accused of a crime. And they're, they're saying leaving the, the grate off the fireplace isn't a crime. Hmm. So the log falls out, it's an accident. This isn't a premeditated murder and, you know, unless anything, right. then he's free to go. Yeah. But of course, he's not free, really. He's got right. to live with this for the rest of his life and live right. with that knowledge Something that I think is a, a, a nice little addition in the film version. So it's it's not mentioned in the script, but I noticed that he has the three pictures of his kids. Yeah. And they sit like little tombstones. There's a shot where they're, right. they're arranged and you only really ever see them from the back. You never see them from the front. So yeah. you just see these kind of black uh, yeah. shapes looking up like tombstones that he yeah. that he carries around always, with him. You can always assume what room. that is, yeah. yeah. And actually it is in the script, at least the, the shooting script that I read. In the beginning of one of the scenes it says, actually like the very first scene that he's in that place, it mentions these three uh, portraits that we never see. We don't see the pictures. And it's very oh yeah, specific. no, they're mentioned, I mean, the the fact they look like tombstones. Oh, is, gotcha. Is something that's very visual. Mm, yeah, yeah. So it's, yeah. it's kind of like a visual language there. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And I think we know what that means for him and what that is. And I think, like you were mentioning earlier, that scene in the police station, I think he probably would have preferred to have been sent to prison for life. I think he would have found that exactly. a whole so lot more. It, it would yeah. do something to justify the guilt that he feels. Right. And instead, he's just going to punish himself mm-hmm. for the rest of his life, basically. And what I love about it is that it's not a melodrama. You know what I mean? Like, even now as I'm speaking about it, I think maybe viewers or, or listeners who don't know the film or who haven't seen it might think it sounds very sort of Oscar bait and, and very showy. And it's a very introspective film that says a lot by not saying a lot. And I think that's what's so good about it. We don't get these weepy scenes of actors crying we don't get any of that we don't get any of your traditional people suffering from grief it's it's very understated and it's much deeper than that and that comes across in in the visuals too for the film like very gray very white Mm -hmm. very cold i mean it is an indie film at heart and yeah it's not even if it did well at the Oscars, it's right. it's not because it was aiming for that. I think it. Right. I think it was just recognized for for what it had achieved. Yeah, absolutely. It it is a film about family, a film about community. Yeah. So we get a lot of characters that are all related to each other. 
the history, the difficulties, the not seeing eye to eye on things, all of that comes into play. And yeah. I think that kind of comes from the top down as well. The idea that Matt Damon and Kenneth Lonergan and right. and Casey Affleck, they've grown up in Massachusetts or right. Connecticut and that kind of area. Right. So they they know what those communities are like. They know right. what these big families are like. Very big Catholic families. Mm-hmm. And yeah, especially a small community like Manchester by the Sea where everyone, I'm sure, knows everyone's business. Exactly. Despite the sort of somber storyline, there's still a lot of room for all these supporting characters to kind of give you a sense of what those communities are like. Especially, I love the accent. It's yeah. just so lively and so, I don't know, something about it. Is, it it definitely really adds something to the arguments, yeah. to the shouting, to yeah. and the brawls and the fighting and yeah. all this stuff. It makes it so much more entertaining. Maybe it's because we're not from there. People from there are probably not. Well, yeah, it, it's kind of a way to make something sound, if not exotic, at least unusual to the right. rest of the right. American audience who are used to a California accent yeah. film. Yeah, and, and a lot of one of my favorite characters, just simply for the humor, is Patrick's one of his girlfriends, her mom, mm-hmm. you know, the one that has a crush on Lee. Jill, I think her name is. Jill, right, right. Uh, and how she just so desperately tries to connect with Lee at the beginning, and then by the end, she just can't wait to get rid of him. Mm-hmm. It's just so funny that those, all those scenes are so funny of of Patrick trying to get laid and, and it's just not working out and asking Lee to help him out by having a conversation with Jill and that just goes horribly wrong because, you know, he can't muster two words. Yeah, so Lee, he rejects the advances of women right. a couple of times in yeah. the story. At the beginning, there's a girl in the bar who right. accidentally spills her drink on him as a yeah. way of, to break the ice. He pushes any kind of romantic attachment away straight away it's always off the cards yeah you do need an attractive actor to explain why this is happening otherwise because if it was just a miserable guy who's not attractive he's not attracting anyone around him so but the idea is like women are kind of allured by him and that whole like kind of sullen somber attitude he's got but then they find oh no that's that's not a that's not an act or a That's, way to get them to approach right. him. It's he doesn't want anything to do with yeah. any romantic relationships yeah. ever again. And that somberness is a little too deep, mm-hmm. I think, for for that attraction. Yeah, I'm sure it's attractive within the first five minutes, but after that, I'm sure it's like, no, yeah, <laughs> it's so, too much. So, but this is just another aspect. All of the ways that this is coming out in his life, just completely uninterested in mm-hmm. informing a, another romantic bond with anyone else right he's violent and aggressive he's always drinking and Mm -hmm. there's that sense of not having recognized to what extent his drinking caused the thing that's hurting him the most Mm. therefore not being able to get out of that loop he's just using it as kind of self-medicating yeah despite the fact that that's one of the first things he probably would want to address if he were to really right. try and beat this and recover but that's the thing he doesn't want to no you know he just doesn't want to recover so to him it's a done deal he's just gonna drink and mm-hmm. and he doesn't deserve that healing in his mind i feel mm-hmm. that's the yeah reason that's why. the way he's treating himself yeah and yeah so the idea is that if he's not willing to treat himself with the the amount of respect he's gonna need to pull himself together that maybe just wanting to look out out for Patrick and protect him would yeah. be enough. Yeah. But as it turns out, it's it's not quite enough. He's he's always going to be hurting. And there's almost a moment where, at least to me, I thought when I first watched it, I remember thinking like, oh, maybe maybe there's a there's a chance that he he is going to take that first step. And that scene is where there is a flashback. Where it's not really a flashback. Sorry, it's a he's kind of dreaming about it, about the two girls next to him. He's on the couch and the girls are saying something like, it smells like we're burning or something. And he's like, no, we're not burning. And then he wakes up, he's burning something on the Mm -hmm. stove and he rushes and you hear Patrick, what was that? And I don't know, for some reason in that moment, I felt like there's Patrick in that same scene. There's a a reminiscence between that and what happened, the previous fire. Yeah, that's the second scene with the same kind of impact as the conversation with his ex-wife 
it's that realization that it can happen again. I, you know, what that scene does for me is that it plants the seed that he sees Patrick as someone that he can take care of, perhaps. If we see it just doesn't quite work out that way. Yeah, if, if he's able to fall asleep and another fire to start, that's telling him right. immediately that he, he can't be responsible. He can't be the guardian. Right. And it's not a job he, he wanted. He, he's, he's shocked by the very idea that he has to become the guardian when he's right. told by the lawyer. And he realizes that the way that things have played out, he originally was just going to be the backup, but it's it's his yeah. turn. He's He is now the only one who can do it. Yeah. And then uh, I think we should also mention Patrick's mom, who had issues of her own, and which is the reason why Lee has to step in, is because you know she mm-hmm. was an alcoholic as well. And she had to go and recover. But I mean, obviously... But she's the one who's actually taking steps to recover from it. Exactly. Even if it is finding Christ and living yeah. with this guy who's kind of dominating her in some way. He's yeah. so weird. Yeah. I mean, Ferris Bueller was so weird in this movie. Yes. Played by Matthew Broderick, mm-hmm. uh, the Christian Christian husband. I think the the moment that Patrick... Well, the, the whole time he's in that dinner, I think he's thinking... That yeah, he's he's not. This isn't really for him either. Yeah, there's kind of a hint that it's not a mainstream form of Christianity. It's it's something pretty pure. Oh, really? I think that's part of it. They okay. that then they don't drink alcohol, and there's also a sense he doesn't trust her still. Yeah. So when, when she goes right. to the kitchen, they kind of there's a moment, and it becomes a bit awkward at the table when she goes to the kitchen, and and he follows her out there. Yeah. I want to see what she's doing. There's that sense that he still doesn't really trust her. Yeah, absolutely. I think he I think he thinks that she's still and I think we see that that she's not completely balanced because she's really nervous. Mm-hmm. Understandably so, but nonetheless she's very uh it's almost like she's unraveling mm-hmm. and she had to step away before it gets even further. And the email that he gets, Patrick gets later when he sends Patrick that email saying that for further visits, he's only to contact him first. I think he probably saw what that visit did to her in some way that we just didn't see. Again, all these clues that you kind of have to piece together. Nothing's clearly... And that's the thing. It's you know. it's not traditional kind of Hollywood screenplay, but it feels familiar. Every, all of mm-hmm. these interactions feel familiar. They feel more, more realistic than mm-hmm. other stories might have handled it. That sense of... It would be easy to write that character as a mother who just pulled it back together, quit drinking, and had found the answer through religion. Right. But to add that extra little layer of there's something up behind the relationship, there's something a bit odd still going on. Yeah. And she can't really have a normal relationship with her son still. Is yeah. it's it's interesting and it it feels more real. Yeah, no, it's great. It it really feels like a lot of the film we're only visually seeing the tip of the iceberg, but simultaneously through the performances and through the writing, we're simultaneously feeling the rest of the iceberg underneath without being told what that is, but we feel it and it's told through moments. There's no dramatic scenes of everything's coming to a climax i wouldn't really know even what the climax of the film really is i would maybe say the conversation between him and his wife could be considered the climax probably that scene yeah but it's very subtle like there's no like plot climax nothing crazy like that it's all revealed through moments and little moments that feels unfinished almost in a way and maybe that i i know how that can bother audiences right but it's not unfinished in the sense of wanting to leave you unfulfilled i think the whole story is complete you you do get a whole story out of it yeah yeah but it feels unfinished in the fact that life is unfinished right until the day you die your life is unfinished yeah and again it's it's too easy to end a film on a nice happy note and say they all lived happily ever after yeah and that could have happened he could have said you know what patrick i'm I'm going to pull myself together and I'm going to live here for you. Yeah. But that's not the end of their lives. Right. You know, it's still unfinished. His relationship with his ex-wife, his, his drinking problem, his, his emotional control and the fights he gets into and all this yeah. stuff, it's, yeah. it, it's all unfinished. And it's all like the narrative is a very, it's a reflection of 
where he's at too. The grief is unfinished and it will mm-hmm. always be unfinished. It's a reflection of, of where he's at too with the flashbacks. You know, they slowly creep in here and there. Mm-hmm. I think the entire narrative is a very reflection of what he's going through. Yeah. And and there is no beginning, middle or end. He's just going through it. And we're just sort of invited to get a piece of what that is. And yeah, and I think yeah. that's why I'd encourage calling the flashbacks memories in a way. Right. If you were to go and look at a script you're working on and and th- look at a flashback that's in it and think, am I showing objectively what happened or am I trying to show one person's perception of it? Those two mm. things are very different, I think. Mm. And I really love that exploration. And some flashbacks, they might not really be Lee's. Mm. You'd have to go back through it and try and look with that critical eye and interpret it the way you want to interpret it and again it's yeah. it's it's an open story i don't think there's a real there's no like single answer to a lot of this stuff because it's about people and mm-hmm. the idea is that people are mysterious yeah and there's so much too of one person that you know no one could ever know 100 percent except for oneself but the thing is is that i love the film because of all those subtleties and I definitely loved it much more this time than I did the first time. I think the first time it was just, it seemed a little too gloomy or just... It's bleak. but It's very bleak. But once you once you take the time to understand what it's really about, it doesn't seem so bleak. In a it way. doesn't, no. Yeah. And it almost feels slightly uplifting this time that I mm-hmm. watched it, you know, because of the humor, because of all the other characters as well. And I think people who are grieving over something as profound as that or suffering from a loss as as deeply as that i think can take comfort in watching the film knowing that they're not being pressured to to uplift themselves but mm-hmm. rather to just relate to someone else who can't well it's, it's something we say about good books is that the second time you read them the third time you read them you find new things you, right. you find a new interpretation of it that right. what you thought it was the first time you read it it's completely different knowing how it's going to end and seeing hints and things that were dropped earlier on in the story and and all these different things so this is the mark of a good work of art is that you can go back to it and find something else Mm -hmm. the next time you watch it that Mm -hmm. you that you just didn't see the first time yeah absolutely and i think one of the big things for me is uh again casey affleck's performance there's several moments where you know, I remember when I watched it the first time when he goes back to the house and it's burning down and he knows what's going on and it's in the moment, but he doesn't react. Nothing really happens. But watching it again this time, you can see him checking out, mm-hmm. like him just feeling the emotion, but rejecting it at the same time. And you see that in the uh, police station as well, when they're telling him all this stuff and he's giving his account, you can see him sort of just saying everything a matter of factly, but there's something there at a, a level deeper down where you can see him struggling to really understand what happened. Mm-hmm. It's not necessarily that he's not feeling the, 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 the death of what ha- of his family. It's more of like his brain trying to sort of make sense of it. Mm-hmm. He can't make sense of it. It's too big. It's too powerful for him at that yeah, moment. It's everything he was grounded in is suddenly gone. It's gone, and that's why he reaches for the gun yeah. to try to... He'd rather just kill himself than let his brain kind of understand what happened. And it's in those little moments that get a deeper sense of who this character is, of what he's going through. Yeah I, yeah, I get the feeling as well that that little scene explains a bit more about his struggle to piece his life back together because he wasn't charged with a crime for the mm-hmm. uh for the the house burning down and the right. kids dying but taking a policeman's gun is a crime and maybe he did get a criminal record mm. as a result and that's why he's stuck in these kind of janitorial jobs and things like that mm. uh despite moving to boston he he can't really find a a good job right that makes sense yeah i can totally see that happening too and, and it's also it's not important to the plot, so they don't need to really right, explain right. that. But yeah, yeah. it's not driving the story forward to explain that. But that's kind of the sense I got because how would he have gotten away with that? Like, uh, 
Yeah. You can't go no, and grab yeah, a gun yeah. out of the policeman's pocket, really. <laughs> Not even if it is to kill yourself. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the only thought that I have contrary to that is it's that small community and they would have just, they understood what he was going through and they let it slide. But right, that's another option too. So, yeah. yeah, it could go either way, I think. From a storytelling point of view, mm-hmm. that whole key moment comes right in the middle of the story. Mm-hmm. So you get these two halves. It's very neatly divided. Mm-hmm. And you have the first half of mystery and trying to figure out. That's what kind of hooks you into the movie mm-hmm. at the beginning is mm-hmm. what is happening? Why are we watching this guy? Why is he like this? Mm-hmm. And then you get the second half where you get to, you know why he is the way he is. Mm-hmm. And then you get to explore that and see that being challenged with his desire to try and become Patrick's guardian. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's definitely, like you said, evenly divided. And I think that's why the film works. It just kind of sucks you in little by little. And this time that I watched it, I was much more entertained. Like it went by really fast, despite that, you know, some of the scenes are kind of slow and not much is happening. And but if you really just invest your time and energy into the story and what it's trying to say and just following this character, like it's a, it's a really beautiful journey to sort of just, it's a slice of life type mm-hmm. of thing. And, but and it, it has a very clear structure yeah. as well. It does, yeah. So it, it it's interesting that on paper it looks like, oh, we're just watching this guy go about his daily life at the beginning. But even those very low-key scenes are important to the overall structure mm-hmm. because they, by, by starting slow, you heighten the drama. Right. If, if you can get people to, to stick with it, mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a tough trick to pull off, I think, without, without having a hook right at the very beginning. Yeah. But that's part of the, the genre. I suppose so when when you have a genre, you have certain expectations, and this mm-hmm. would be in the genre of indie filmmaking mm-hmm. in, rather than anything else. It's it's yeah. So you have that sense. Oh, with indie films, they experiment a bit more, and they have more yeah. low key scenes, and they have scenes that are more real to life and things right. like that. Yeah, it kind of uh, takes its time mm-hmm. with the characters. It takes its time to really kind of let the audience get to know them on a more intimate level. You know, films like this one and uh, recently I watched Call Me By Your Name and it's it, they just like let the camera just sort of sit there and just have the characters do what they do. And it doesn't matter if it's nothing going on really, but you're getting a good sense of who these people are. And ultimately that's more powerful than trying to just move the plot along just for the sake of moving the plot along because then you are emotionally invested in these characters and you care about what happens. So then by the end, it's a much more uh, satisfying I yeah, think, experience. So, you know, there's, there are two big approaches to filmmaking and the studio system has has its, its way. And the alternative, which really started up in Europe, especially with yeah. things like the French New Wave, but right. that fly-on-the-wall kind of yeah. observational film, yeah. American indie took that back from Europe. And that's really when when we describe something as blockbuster or indie, we're really just saying, does it allow you to sit and observe? Mm. Or does it whisk you along on this story that it's a roller coaster ride and you can't get off? Right. That's the studio system. And if if you're just sitting and observing and you're not really sure where it might go, you'll call it indie, even if it's got a huge budget behind it and a-list stars and everything like that right yeah and it's two completely different uh business standpoints too you know a, a studio is they're preoccupied with how much money they're gonna make they they butt in into the creative process you know the studio heads they they watch the dailies and you know they make uh alterations to scripts they talk to the directors to change things the difference between that and uh, independent feature is that the director gets to make mm-hmm. whatever movie he wants to make and then he shops it and yeah. whoever buys it, buys it as is. And the creative control is even stronger in this one because Absolutely. Yeah. the writer ends up becoming the director. So even though he didn't know he would direct it when he wrote right, it, right. he ends up becoming the director. So yeah. the creative control is almost unthinkable in uh, 
it's the traditional model. Yeah. yeah, it's completely his vision. He knows the story inside out, and you could tell. You know, he knew mm -hmm. what moments to linger on. He knows these characters, and and that's what a really great filmmaker does. And unfortunately, studios are more preoccupied with making money, mm -hmm. what sells, which it's understandable. You know, it is a business, but that's the difference between independent filmmaking and studio filmmaking is that you're not gearing it directly towards a specific demographic. You're just being an artist and telling a story. Yeah, and, and so there's that sense of, well, why make something, why fund it if it's not going to make huge amounts of money? And, and this is one of the answers to that question. Like I said, this is a movie you can return to time and time again. Mm -hmm. And that's actually a really hard thing to find, is a movie that you want to go and rewatch and yeah. and yeah. go back to like like a good book that you right. might read it mm -hmm. every couple of years. And James Baldwin, for example, used to say he read A Tale of Two Cities every year. Mm. He's one of the greatest American writers. Mm. He wanted to read that book every year and just see how his perception of it had changed. He considered it the greatest work of literature. So he's going to go back and reread it. Filmmakers can aim to do that as well. And yeah. th there's nothing about storytelling that says it has to be done in words on a page. I mean, obviously with the screenplay, you start that way, but, right, right. but you know, we, we have theater, we have, mm -hmm. we have films. Even nowadays we're looking at interactive media as being a right. new way of doing storytelling as well. The fact that this was a an Amazon idea as well, having people return to it, it's kind of like having a regular TV series in the same way. You want people to come back to something. Yeah. So initially this would have been talked about it, and then it, it sits in that online library that, you know, returning customers will say, oh, I haven't seen that for a while. I'll, I'll watch that again. Yeah. It leaves you with a feeling. I think the mm -hmm. best movies that I go back to leave me with a certain feeling. And it's it's tangible almost. This film definitely gives me an interesting feeling. I, th I think it makes you face some things that you don't necessarily want to face yeah. at times. And then you're relieved because you faced them. And you're relieved because you, you didn't have to face them in real life. Yeah, of course. You know what I mean? It's like, I, I, that was my thinking whatever my suffering in this life as of now, I'm thankful that it hasn't been as severe as something mm -hmm. like that. I mean, it creates empathy too for people who obviously go through that stuff because those things happen. Not necessarily specifically people losing their kids in a fire, but the equivalent of that. You know, It's, it's any kind of natural disaster. Right. And, the, and then that yeah. question of to what extent you're responsible for accidents. So... Let's say there's you're in you're in Mexico City and there's an earthquake and you you survive and other people die mm. and then that question is always going to be in your head of well why did we choose to go that day it's my fault because we chose to go mm. that day and right, that's right. that's something that is is a very hard thing to get people to to not think about and to yeah. to assess logically and think accidents happen no matter how catastrophic things can be accidental. And obviously, Lee in in this story can shoulder some of the blame because he is extremely drunk when it happens, and right. he's been doing drugs as well. So he's right. not in his right mind, and as a father, he needs to be responsible. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's such a gray area for me too because he technically didn't do anything. It's not like he was around his kids when he was drinking and snorting cocaine. He wasn't endangering them in any way he actually lights a fire to to warm up the house because he didn't want the yeah the heater because that was bad for so he was thinking of the others right and there is also that question of well could this have happened in other circumstances as well right. but the leaving the house that moment of leaving his responsibility to go and chase his own pleasure essentially right just getting more drinks that's the yeah. moment that is the moment but, uh, but and the, the policeman yeah. puts it really well a million other people did stupid things last night you're unfortunately you're the guy yeah that, i mean that sucks because i'm sure there was other people drinking that night who mm -hmm. were 
intentionally causing mayhem, intentionally trying to do something stupid. And he left because he didn't think there was anything to be there for in mm. a way. So it, it's kind of, yeah, it just sucks. You just want him <laughs> like, to have, just sucks yeah. you just want him to have some perspective. He's, he's right. not entirely blameless. He, he could take more responsibility yeah. for himself, but it's a lesson he doesn't even learn for his own life afterwards. The, the idea of taking right, yeah. personal responsibility. No, he just shuts off. Yeah. He just shuts off completely. And understandably so, I thought about it for a second. Like, what would I have done? What would I be in his shoes? And honestly, I think I probably would be him. I don't know if there was enough uh, will for me to restart a life after going through something like that and carrying that. I I don't know. So that goes back to the, the question I posed right at the beginning is there something that's so awful mm. that you can't bounce back from it, that you can't overcome? Right. And I don't, in this particular case, I don't know. I think it's, it's I don't a know very either. interesting <laughs> exploration of where that limit might be. It is, yeah. And it's something that I don't really particularly want to think about yeah. too much, you know, in the sense of like, hmm, what is the worst that can happen to me? Because a lot yeah. of bad things could happen. But I, yeah, it's just, it's just, it's an interesting thing to think about yeah. and uncomfortable a little bit because life is full of unexpected tragedies here and there. You know, it's uh, the only, uh, yeah. the only two characters who can answer this question are Lee and Randy. Mm-hmm. And it's clear from that last conversation with Randy that she's not okay either. Right. And her heart right. is always going to be broken Yeah, and mm-hmm. she's always going to be in pain. Yeah. She might be better at, managing that pain in a day-to-day in her day-to-day life yeah but it's never going away she did such a great job in that scene you know where you could really feel her pain in Mm -hmm. the way she was speaking and in her tone um it really pierces you it's a very uncomfortable scene to watch it is and partly because it's unresolved yeah there's this sense of us It, it it reminds you of who we are and that sense of we're often trapped unable to communicate to each other fully Mm -hmm. unable to express what's really inside because there's Mm. there's all these mental blocks and barriers and right even the people who have have done this have done so much work on themselves and tried to really get to the stage where they can open up like that can will find that really hard and then you you look at this guy and he's been just just punishing himself for so long and it's it's lee who can't really talk in that scene. she's she's able to she's letting her emotions uh boil over and she's yeah she's that heartbreak is coming through but he doesn't really know what to say he he can't uh, at times yeah. he's like stuttering and he can't say anything back yeah. and that's the most painful part is that you know that that's just going to be another regret for him yeah. He's going to feel like he he missed another opportunity. He could have told her something in that moment. He could have yeah. calmed her down. He could have said what she needed to hear and he couldn't do it. Yeah. And, and also another great thing about that scene is that it reveals the aftermath of the event in their own personal relationship by what she was saying, you know, I'm sorry for the things I said to you. I should burn in hell for the things yeah. I said to you. I mean, that's such a great line because she didn't have to say anything specifically of what she said. Just with that line, yeah. you get the picture of what those arguments must have looked like or maybe not arguments, but the stuff she probably said to him. Some things are know. better left off screen and that is one of those great yeah. choices too. Yeah. There could have been flashbacks mm-hmm. of how the relationship fell apart in the aftermath. But it's better to not show it. And we know that it must have been atrocious. Yeah. And this way you don't risk having a poor performance ruin the the moment. So you just get the sense that it's there. And you don't have to have the actors crying their eyes out and screaming and breaking things and, and risk it going a little bit too far and right. breaking that spell for the audience. This way it works so much better. Exactly. Just refer back to it in a few exactly. lines of dialogue. Yeah. Uh, then you're risking it being very melodramatic when you have scenes like that. 
and it completely avoided that like you said it was perfectly perfect choices in that sense i'd like to talk a bit more about patrick as well patrick is um is he meant to be 15 yes he's 15 yeah, I mean, he doesn't look 15. He doesn't look... Movie, but, but do they ever... I mean, that's the thing about yeah. movie teenagers in movies that always pisses me off. Yeah. I've never seen a 15-year-old look like that. Yeah, so Patrick, he's he's meant to be 15. No audience member is going to believe he's, he's 15. But it is mentioned in dialogue that he can't drive yet because he promised his dad he wouldn't start until he's 17. Right. So if I hadn't read the script, I would have guessed he was 16. Yeah. Because he looks a bit too old to be 15. But yeah. 15, 16, same kind of area. He's really funny, really witty. He's a smart aleck. Definitely. But it's also a way to cover up his emotions. Mm-hmm. It's a way to protect himself. And right, he's a teenager and he's he's in that... He's also occupying the role of being an independent man for the very first time. Mm-hmm. And that's a very, it's, it's an interesting experience because you, you don't know where the limits are when, when that happens, mm-hmm. when you're suddenly the man of the house and you're 16 years old. Right. You, it's, it's easy to go too far. And, and those conversations he has with Lee, uh, for example, he, he basically said, it's one of the first conversations he has, but he asks if his girlfriend can stay over the night. Mm. My dad always let me. And Lee says, well, why are you asking me then? And mm. he's just revealed because it's, you know, <laughs> right. his dad wouldn't have let him, of course. Uh-huh. He's expecting a no for the answer. And then he's suddenly realizing, oh, Lee's not going to be my dad. He's not going to tell me what, to do. he's going to treat me like an adult now. And, right. and I, I've gone through this process of becoming an adult by my father dying. Yeah. He's a great, he's a great character full of a lot of complexity too. I love mm-hmm. this scene. Like he's, he's really funny. I mean, you have yeah. uh, one of my favorite scenes of him is uh, when they're, this is right after Lee punches the window and cuts his hand and they're sitting there eating and Patrick asks Lee, you know, what happened to your hand? And he says, oh, got cut. And he's like, oh, for a second there, I didn't know what happened. You know, yeah. just like that was so yeah, he's, funny. He's very witty, <laughs> um, and that was it. That was the, the whole scene. Yeah, like it was just to make that joke. And then you have another on the flip side. You have uh, emotional scenes where he really lets you know what's going inside of him. Mm-hmm. The the scene where pretty much has a panic attack. Yeah, and you know he can't get the fridge to close or something. He's struggling with something, and he just breaks down, and yeah. he just. I think he he says he doesn't want to see his dad in a freezer and he's really feeling the weight of his father's death yeah, in that scene. Even though I just said he's experiencing that adulthood for the first time, he's not fully an adult. And, right, yeah, yeah. And even though Lee will treat him as an adult in some ways, yeah. there are other ways where he, especially with regards to the boat and money, he's trying to control the the behavior just to make sure that he doesn't ruin it for himself right because of the the lack of experience and in that scene he won't let patrick be alone mm. kicks mm. a door in and goes in to sit with him and he says right. you know if you're freaking out i need to be here and actually waits for him to fall asleep yeah. for him to leave you know which shows he does care there's he's protective and yeah. he's he just wants to kind of guide him into into adulthood without controlling any aspect of it Mm. and that's a a big scary thing for patrick i think and he's he's hiding all of this behind that that confidence he's definitely a more confident character than lee well for sure and i think another reason or another way he's coping with the you know the grief is that he has a lot on his plate that's what the hockey teacher says to him the the ice isn't a distraction right come back when in a few days take some time to yeah to yeah. think and it's what he doesn't want to do he wants to just keep experiencing things and, he just doesn't and want to think d- about d- it. don't switch off right yeah. like, that's why he has two don't girlfriends be left alone. Yeah. yeah that's why he has a busy social life you know he's got a band two girlfriends he's got all these things going on so there's two ways of coping with it you're shown an example of different ways of coping with grief from different perspectives different characters 
Yeah, I mean, it is a different type of grief as well. It he, is. He he can't feel responsible for for what happens. And it's been building up to it. I mean, he was diagnosed with that years and years before, so it's not like it was a shock or they didn't see it coming. And in a way, he probably, in some way, was preparing for it because it's a it was like an eventual thing. Yeah, no. they, uh, the doctor says in the hospital scene that Joe can expect to live five to ten years. Right. That's it. <laughs> Which also in that scene, another very funny moment that I didn't catch the first time I watched it was when the doctor is explaining the disease and then, you know, the wife is like, oh, my God, you know, starts freaking out. And she's like, oh, are you familiar with it? No, but... No, but know, it sounds bad. But yeah. it sounds <laughs> bad. And, uh, and also, like, in the same interaction... The doctor says, you know, yeah, this is a bad disease. And I think it's Joe. I think he's the one that asks, you know, well, what's a good disease? And she says, poison ivy. <laughs> <laughs> but she's not trying to be rude. It's just, she's yeah, just being yeah. factual. Like that, that's a good disease. You can come back from that. I just think like it's all these funny moments are sprinkled like real life. Mm-hmm. You don't have one. It's all both, you know, yeah, that's humorous. None of these scenes are being played for laughs, but the no. the humor is there because you'll always find humor in, in the worst situations. Yeah, exactly. And that's what I really appreciated about it this second time that I watched it. It, it didn't feel so somber to me anymore. I mean, obviously, it's a very somber storyline, but there's definitely enough humor for you to kind of keep engaged with it and not feel too dark. So how could we sum up this movie? Well, I think the movie is definitely much more about character than it is about plot. You know, I think the only thing that you would consider plot is Lee trying to take care of Patrick and that whole bit. But it really isn't about that. It's about the characters. Yeah, that, that's more like uh, interaction and conflict. Yeah. Rather than plot. Yeah, there's absolutely. There's no actual plot. It's just really you spending time with all these different characters and all these supporting characters, which really adds a very colorful palette to the story and to sort of the community and the family. And you get a good sense of who these characters are just by one scene. Yeah, I I think the reason you're saying that is because we think of plot as character development, that a character begins a story one way and they come out different at the end. Well, and we get this sense that he doesn't come out different at the end of this. Well, that's true. He well, experiences things, right? But he remains stuck, right? And therefore, is it a is it a plot? Well, I mean, yeah, I think what you're talking about too is that's like a character arc that doesn't really mm-hmm. go anywhere in a way. But plot in the in the terms of there's not something that needs to be done, or you know, there's this happens and that happens sort of thing. It's more about you spending time with this character and dealing with, like you said, yeah. dealing with the stuff moment to moment, dealing with the other supporting characters that are only in a couple scenes, really. You know, I think mm-hmm. each character, supporting character, probably has like two, three scenes tops, and that's it. But then, but they linger. They linger because of the the way it's written, the scenes that reveal so much about these characters mm-hmm. and sort of their perspective and what they add to to Lee's story. Yeah, and that's a reflection of life because life is not a linear plot. It is a sequence of events. You can form a narrative out of them, Mm -hmm. but the past is also present Mm. and the future is always on the horizon. And these memories that kind of pop up from time to time, they come out in in an interesting structure to reveal the story to us. And it's more it's more like a life than a plot. Exactly. It's definitely one of those slice of life films that uh, you just have to engage with the characters, and then that's where that's where the uh, the payoff is. Definitely, and I think it does it so beautifully. Well, that's Manchester by the Sea. Yep. It's a great movie. If anyone hasn't read the script, it's. It's worth checking out. There's the shooting script and the uh, the version that was on the blacklist back in 2014. Both right. of them are very interesting and worth reading. Yep. And the film, like I said, it's it's always worth returning to and see see how your perspective changes uh, mm. by returning to the story and see if you find another perspective on it. Uh, I think it's a it's an open 
story with many possible interpretations and yeah. there's a lot of rewarding stuff to be found if you go back yeah. to it. It's definitely great because of that, because you're a participant, you're you're being asked to engage with the story. And in and, and regards to the script, it was such a great script to read from a writer's perspective. It was very crisp the way it explains everything, like in the action paragraphs, not so much the dialogue, but the way it sets things up, how it's subtle even in the writing, but it paints a very profound and very vivid picture. So I highly recommend the script as well. 